I've got two alternatives. I've got one of just falling in with the fold and Klein and going with Klein and going with the group and doing what the other three want to do in the, on their sort of path, which is virtually to be managed by Klein. Uh, or I can just sort of do what I think's right. It comes down to one basic fact, which is my opinion is that the Beatles, having finished as a group and having actually finished, and me actually being in a new group, a new lineup and everything, I believe that no matter what the consequences are, tax consequences, sorry boys, you can't do it, we've got a contract, blah, blah, blah. I believe that the relationship, certainly the spirit in which we started the group, the whole idea I thought all along was if anyone is in trouble, wants to get out, is uh, in, in a sticky situation, the idea is that we'll sit down and like see what we can do about it. Whereas in fact, it's just the opposite that's happening. And, uh, it boils down to one thing, they have my contract. For me, I want to get out of the contract. I think the group's finished, we've split, and everything that we ever earned or that we were ever in should now be split, I think. They don't agree. They think it should still continue exactly as planned. But if the three of them wanted to, they could sit down today, <clears throat> write a little bit of paper, and I would be released. And that is all I want, by the way. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Adrian Sinclair. The Beatles. Naked.
and be with you. recording this show I did something I've never done before which is listen to the McCartney album and Ram back to back which was you know a dodgy thing to do really but I thought I'm going to go in with an open mind seriously no preconceptions just listen to them obviously I'm going to be focusing on tracks but overall what's the impression that each album is making on me you know how do I feel about it now and how would I have felt about it back in 1970 or 71. So I listened. I had a bit of the herbal tea to put me in the right frame of mind, maybe hear what Macca was hearing. And <laughs> for me, it came over as if he's basically revisiting the concepts of the last two Beatles albums with a Brian Wilson-esque twist to it. Okay, I mean, first, he nails the kind of stripped-down get-back approach with the McCartney album, albeit that, of course, it's all overdubs because he's doing it himself, but it's still got that as nature intended feel to it. And I'm basically fine with that. Um, and then we have the much more grandly conceived sort of Abbey Road wannabe in Ram. And I'm not going to judge the directions that Paul chose to take artistically, okay? I mean, he's the artist. He was where he was in 1970 and 71, 69. Um, and that's all his prerogative. But if I, if this was like 1970 and I was listening to hear something Beatlesque on these albums, for me, the game is up as soon as I hit Hotter Sun, which is, what's that, like the fifth track, I think, on McCartney? And uh, it's like travelogue music to me. It's like, what is that? you know, doing here. <laughs> and, and also four instrumentals on that album. And it, it just start, you know, I'm all for the instrumental. We all rue the loss of the instrumental, but it's like four of them. It just feels like padding to me. And the two standout tracks on that album every night. And maybe I'm amazed, which I think should have opened and closed the album. So what did I end up with? It was like about a half hour of, I would say, pleasant listening, but it didn't resonate for me on that deeper level where the Beatles always existed. It was just kind of superficial. It's got that generally jaunty feel, which kind of betrays for me virtually none of the darkness that we know was inside his head at that time. And as such, it's the polar opposite of Plastic Ono Band, and gives us that contrast between the two personalities of Lennon and McCartney. We'll get to Ram later. But in terms of McCartney, it's like, yes, there are some expressions of how he's feeling, but it's pretty vague. It's not out there. And yeah, it just doesn't, the album itself is pleasant, but I kind of felt, why? And why don't we get to hear more of what he's really feeling? 
Well, I think a couple of things, Richard. Number one, I have a very distinct memory of getting that album, McCartney, when it came out. And it, there was something weird about it right from the get-go. It seemed like people didn't realize the front cover was the front cover, so in the rack it was the back cover was facing you. Everything seemed a bit ass-backwards about it, uh, even as a 10-year-old. I, I felt it was very lightweight except for one song. For me, the only thing that... I loved Maybe I'm Amazed, and I thought it was very, to me, very beatle and it was like something that, since I got the album at the same time as, you know, Let It Be, it felt like more of that should have been on Let It Be, almost, to me. Um, and uh, I was very, very disappointed with the first McCartney album as a kid, and it colored the experience. Uh, I never really listened to that one much. Uh, I will disagree with you about... I know that we've had this discussion about Ram a bunch of times. Um, Ram was the one for me. When that came out, that seemed quite beatly. I loved the single of Another Day. Um, and I, you know, we. it's funny you mentioned Abbey Road, and I can see the parallels more now. When I was a kid, we used to call it Sergeant Paul. It was like, you know, to me it was his Sergeant Pepper. You know, he was throwing everything but the kitchen sink into it. And um, I didn't think everything worked on Ram. I... I I always uh, made mixtapes where I would cut off the Admiral Halsey part of of uh, Uncle Albert, and I would loop the end and fade it out just the way they did on the McCartney TV special in 73. But I really thought there was some great, great stuff on... I really still enjoy Ram. It was one of the first CDs I ever bought, so I could listen to it on headphones. Well, so, uh, on, on this latest listen, I went in, as I said, with an open mind. And it starts off fine for me with too many people. You know, it's enough to wind Lennon up in there. And uh, it's a good, solid song. And I think it's a, a pretty good album opener. It's actually, it ends up being, for me, the strongest track on there. Um, I think, you know, Three Legs, I take as a dig at the other three Beatles. So that's the second track. Um, but it's fairly weak to me, you know. And then there are two more weak tracks with Dear Boy, which also apparently got under John's skin. Oh, I loved Dear Boy. Why, why uh, didn't you like that one? Because... It's that jaunty feel, you know, all the way through this album, I feel there's this kind of self-conscious smugness on, on Paul's part. I don't know. It, and it, it expresses itself sometimes in whimsy, you know, and... Dear Boy strikes you as jaunty? It's very smiley smile to me. It's, it's kind of the most Brian Wilson-y of the tracks on there for me. Well, there's a, quite a lot of Brian Wilson. Except for Backseat of My Cars. Do you think that's a Brian Wilson-y type song? Backseat Absolutely. Oh, God, yeah. I've never thought Completely. of it Completely. Huh. Interesting. And also, Crena Craw, where you've got the vocals, the chorus. Yeah, it was influenced by a uh, documentary called uh, The Tribe That Hides From Man. The day after, Paul went into the studio and uh, he laid that song down, influenced by what he'd seen on TV the night before. There's some meaning for you, Adrian, the tribe that hides from man. So McCartney's hiding these recording sessions from everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, strange irony. <laughs> There's some, something sort of subliminal in that that I like. You see, yeah. Uncle Albert, to me, is like the full-on wing sound. And yes, it gives him a non-Beatles sound, but and that's appealed to many people. It just doesn't appeal to me. It sounds like early ABBA. You know, it's <laughs> like it's so far away from the Beatles. Wait, now you're telling me you don't like ABBA? I oh like goodness. ABBA, but, you know, this is Paul McCartney. I'm not buying a McCartney album to listen to early ABBA. I, I want to throw this out to our guests, Richard. 
who we should say, by the way, are co-authors of an upcoming book. Would one of you gentlemen like to tell us the title of the book and what it's about? Our deep dive into McCartney's life is called McCartney Legacy, and it's been brought out by Day Street, which is part of the HarperCollins book group. The first volume will be probably published in 2021, and the second volume two years after that. And who knows if uh, people go out and continue to buy the books, there could be more than two. Having seen a sneak peek at this, Richard, I think everybody in our audience is going to have a jaw-dropping experience at the research and the detail these two guys are going into. This is truly an epic piece. Um, I'll, uh, it Actually, the thing it most reminds me of is uh, You Really Got Me by Doug Hinman and Jason Brabazon, the, uh, the Bible of the Kinks. Reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of that, except a lot more readable. Mm. Thank you. We'll take that. <laughs> Which, by the way, that won a, that won a uh, Library of Congress award, in case you guys don't aren't familiar with the book. Wow. Very, very, very beautifully researched, and it is it is like being a monk in a cave. You open it up, I wonder what the kinks were doing on this day. Mm. I was going to say, I want to throw it out to the guys. You had touched upon this, Richard, about Ram. Is It sounds like early ABBA to you. It doesn't sound like Paul. It doesn't sound like the Beatles. I kind of agree with you there. This, especially on certain guitar sounds, I'm, I'm hearing something I never heard out of Paul before. So I'm throwing out to you guys, is Paul looking for a sound or a bunch of sounds to latch on to, uh, especially on Ram? I would say absolutely. I mean, the McCartney album was in a certain way an accidental album. He had a borrowed Studer from Abbey Road, and he had been making demos, you know, all these years. He was familiar with, you know, recording his own stuff you know, and, and, and bringing it in to present to the others uh, uh, in the studio. But uh, with the McCartney album, he had a bunch of songs left over from, well, going back to the White Album period, really, you know, Junk, for instance, and Teddy, Teddy Boy uh, almost was on Let It Be. Uh, and and wasn't Hotter Sun an early Beatles instrumental? Mm, yeah, it was, yeah. So he, he's got this stuff and he's writing new stuff, but he's not, I think, entirely sure that he's putting out a solo album. I think he just wants to see how it goes. Um, and so the beginning of this project, you know, before he began taking some of the tapes into the studio to work on them further uh, and do some things completely in the studio, I, I think they were fundamentally glorified demos but using much better equipment than he usually used for his demos, you know, in case, you know, in case it was something that could be put out as an album, and it turned out it was.
McCartney album doesn't necessarily capture that, you know, darkness and other things. I think aspects of Ram do. And I think that in Ram, he really was looking for a sound. Um, And in interviews, you know, after Ram came out, I mean, obviously everyone promotes their current thing and sees their current thing as better than their previous thing, if, if only for publicity purposes, but he talked about how McCartney was just something he needed to do, you know, to at the time to get uh, this stuff down on tape, see what would happen. But Ram, he felt, was what he, where he really was at musically. And he recorded, you know, well over 20 songs for Ram, a lot of which ended up on Red Rose Speedway. Uh, and yeah, I think I think he was trying to create the Paul McCartney sound. And uh, you know, it's not just too many people that's uh, a dig at John or a message to John. Mm. Let's say uh, the that's that's the very first track on the album. The very last track on the album, the incredibly Brian Wilson esque <laughs> backseat of my car, uh, ends with this repeated sort of refrain of we believe that we can't be wrong and john definitely took that as a message to him too (laughs) i could see that (laughs) yeah but you know i mean i know a lot of people think it's much classier you know mccartney's like little swipes rather than lennon's overt how do you sleep Mm -hmm. but personally dealing with people i much prefer it when they just say what they're thinking straight to my face rather than the kind of passive aggressive and you have to figure out exactly what he's saying and who he's saying it about. Well, it leads to stuff like you had mentioned earlier about uh, Dear Boy, which according to McCartney, at least every time I heard about it, was he was directing that at um, Mr. C, you know, uh, Linda's first husband that, you know. Yes. Y- right. You don't know what you're missing here. This this is a really great girl, and I mean, not I have no idea what their relationship was and why they broke up or anything. But uh, Heather's Heather's biological dad, I right, do know yeah. that he committed suicide at some point, and uh, you know he had some issues, obviously. But I think John jumping the gun. Oh, it's all every negative things about me. <laughs> that oblique way of of taking a dig probably but leads to. Don't such you paranoia. think that three legs though is a dig, if not just at John, at the other three Beatles? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole of Ram was kind of reactionary in a way. Um, if you if you look at the way it was recorded, he went over to New York in October and he laid down the basic rhythm tracks with a bunch of session guys. Um, and then it's kind of well documented that he kind of hit a bit of a creative brick wall. So come February 1971, in the middle of the uh, court case to dissolve the Beatles, um, he ended up having to, you know, call in John Eastman's help and John ended up packing them off to L.A. with Jim Gersio. Um, and Jim was the guy who had to really get the whole project back on the rails again. So I think there's a lot of that in the album. You can see uh, when they went into the studio, uh, he didn't have lyrics for half of the songs. So things like, you know, Three Legs, um, Uncle Albert, for example, I don't think had lyrics when he went into the studio. Um, so a lot of this stuff, he was he was possibly reacting to what was going on around him at the time. Um, yeah. Whether that was uh, the Beatles or uh, Linda's uh, former husband, you know, I think there was a lot of that going on in Ram. Uh, hence the album, like you say, was McCartney trying to find a sound and it evolved over a period of about six months while he was recording it. Well, 
guys know what I mean when I'm saying there's this kind of smugness in there there's mm. sometimes there's whimsy maybe he's trying to be funny or a bit humorous but rockers like Smile Away and Monkbury Moon Delight to me could have been so much stronger 
if they were approached more seriously. But there's a kind of, I don't know, a self-consciousness and a kind of light-heartedness at times, whether it's the backing vocals or whatever. And it just takes all the edge off for me. Don't you think it's partially the marijuana? I, I, oh, yeah. I, I really, I mean, it, all you have to do is listen to that companion piece, which was a great collector's item for years, Brung to You, E-W-E, Brung to You by um, the, the companion. It's like a half hour thing. You know the thing I'm talking about, yeah, Richard, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, you listen to that and it's absolutely like, you know, things we would make as teenagers when you, you know, ingest something and think, oh, this will be funny. Uh, I, I really think that that it's not so much smugness is just maybe just a little bit too much of substance getting in the way and and not having a john to look down his glasses down the nose and say that it's really under the arm mate you know i don't know about that and he didn't have that anymore well according to the uh, the guys in new york paul was pretty clean when he was recording at columbia um but then when he went and shifted the production to los angeles with jim gercio he wasn't turning up to the studio until 5 p.m. Uh, this is what Jim's told us anyway. And uh, they'd record through until the early hours of the morning. And he was smoking a lot of pot. Uh, he was lacking direction. Uh, and that's probably why you ended up with that kind of crazy stuff like, uh, now hear this song of mine. I think that was recorded in Los Angeles. But, you know, something else also is that the closing tracks where it kind of builds up to this Abbey Road light grandiosity, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you have Eat at Home and Long-Haired Lady. Those, to me, are not fully developed compositions. This is something that's going to come back to haunt McCartney time and again. I, I think that they're not fully realised, and it, it's like lush production trying to mask that, and I don't think it works. And Backseat of My Car, to me, it's like overblown. Again, it's, uh, it's a so-so composition, and you've got this kind of desperate to be majestic, overblown production. You know, it just sort of builds and builds, and it's as if it's really trying to be a kind of sequel to Abbey Road. And for me, it isn't. Well, it could. It, obviously, as is, the lyrics could have been stronger. Vocal performances are pretty. Uh, those would be pretty tough for anybody to match. I guess. Maybe oh yeah, it music, is, musically, in oh, terms of the performances, I haven't got any criticism. It's yeah. about. It's about the composition. Yeah, like I said earlier, um, I think for a long period in the early 70s, Paul was kind of lyrically paralysed at times. He really struggled to uh, to form ideas at times. And I suppose without having his, you know, sounding board of John Lennon there uh, and that competitive edge, you know, maybe, maybe that was one of the reasons why uh, things like, uh, I don't know, like you say, backseat of my car wasn't as lyrically strong as it could have been. Um, but I think that... Like I say, a, a lot of that um, had to do with, you know, the, maybe the depression and the breakup of the Beatles and the lack of John being around at the time. You know, Adrian, to, to, you might have you might remember at the very end of John's life, there's this great interview uh, that we did with Playboy. And he mentions, he goes, you know, Paul just would fall into this sort of self-imposed trap that he couldn't write lyrics, but certain songs he did, like, you know, Here, There, and Everywhere, or uh, what was the one he cited, actually? It was uh, Got to Get You Into My Life, because, you know, that's a great lyric, and, you know, if he tried, that was his thing. He would not try hard enough. That, that, was, that was Lennon's assessment at the end of his life. Um, and, I, once again, I, bla- I blame it all on uh, self-medication at the time, you know, for his depression, which I guess was smoking a lot of dope. 
So where do you think, you know, the dark period starts for Paul? At what point? I mean, we were saying much of 69, it's not good for him. Um, but where do you think he starts to really maybe isolate? Is that, you know, before the Beatles split? I'd say about May 8th. Why May 8th? <laughs> well, that's the day that um, the other three sign a contract. Uh, and, you know, they get together to listen to Glyn John's playback of the Get Back album again. And after that's over, the others want to sign the contract with Alan Klein. And Paul declines. <laughs> What a language we have. Um, Very good. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the the three of them basically took the view for the very first time, apparently, in the Beatles' history that, okay, three to one, we win, uh, whereas, you know, in theory, at least, it was supposed to be unanimous until then. Um, and, you know, I guess, I, I don't know what he thought. I mean, he must have known that the, that the discussions were at the point where they were going to sign the guy. Um, but he seems to have felt that he could forestall that a bit more. And and he argued at the time, you know, wait a minute, it's Saturday. He doesn't have to meet with his board because they were saying he's got to have his board ratify it like his board's not going to ratify a contract with the Beatles. And, um, you know, and he, and he was arguing that they should be paying a lower fee and all that. But that those were just sort of side issues for him. You know, it was the Klein versus Eastman thing and the fact that he was being really marginalized by the other three, which is something new for him. Um, well, actually, Alan, if I can just interrupt there. Also, you say it's something new for him, but it comes on the back of him feeling maybe marginalized by John when he takes up with Yoko. Well, okay. okay. That's been brewing for a while, though. But, I mean, you can... I, I think that Yoko thing didn't really affect the output of the team, until the failed sessions for Get No, Back, but so. I think it I think it played with his head. We're talking about, you know, what's going on inside his head. And I think it definitely played with his head there. And uh, he struggled to come to terms with that and fi find his own footing. Oh, yeah. But I mean, but he had had successes during that early stage. I think the, the thing that to me where I would have the, the line of demarcation, where does he get depressed is when the sessions wrap for um, for Get Back because it it, it failed. I mean, they, they they knew it was not good. What did John call it? The shittiest load of badly recorded shit with bad feeling in history or something like that. <laughs> ever. So, yeah. Ever. So it's like, I think they all knew at the end of this. It wasn't like, hey, we got, you know, they salvaged a single out of it. You know, they got Get Back out of it, which is a great single. But it's, you know, that I think that was their first real failure. You know, I know people say... Magical, magical mystery, mystery tour, tour yeah. but uh, but but at least they had. I mean, at least Lennon went to McCartney at the end of Magical Mystery Tour and said, "Hey, I don't care what the rest of them think. I thought it was great, or it was fun, or whatever he said." So the people whose opinion he cared about supported the first failure, but not this one. And and I think that that's you know, I, that's where I'd put it. Okay, but you know, if you consider that um, John met Yoko at the end of '66 and began zoning out in his own way on the Beatles, you know, shortly thereafter. So Paul is basically in charge for Sgt. Pepper. Um, Magical Mystery Tour is his project. Uh, the White Album, maybe uh, more all of them knowing that they needed to, you know, get in and do something with all the stuff that they wrote in India and... Uh, 
in India, obviously, with George's deal. They all went. Uh, meanwhile, Paul comes back early from India and is setting up Apple, so he has sort of charge of that, too. Uh, and then there's the Let It Be sessions, which sort of ended not that well, and that was partly because they had a deadline that, you know, with Ringo going off to film Magic Christian. I mean, if, if Ringo wasn't didn't have to leave those sessions could have extended until they were satisfied with the stuff they had. Um, but he was still in charge of it. And, uh, you know, going into Abbey Road, I mean, it, it, you know, John may have woken up a bit for that, but it was still really Paul. Paul's the one who calls George Martin and said, we want to make an album the way we always used to and all of that stuff. So, um, even though Yoko was there and maybe Yoko was uh, becoming John's best friend instead of Paul and all that stuff, that actually created an opportunity for Paul. It, it created a kind of vacuum that Paul could step in and take charge. So that had its compensations. Um, but I think that the, you know, all of these business things going on in 1969, I mean, apart from the fact that you had the Klein versus Eastman stuff going on, it's happening at a time when um, Clive Epstein wants to unload uh, NEMS. And they want NEMS, not because they need uh, a management company, although they are starting Apple, but because NEMS is taking a 20% cut on all of their record sales, et cetera, and that simply by acquiring NEMS, that get, gives them, in effect, a 20% raise, okay? Then there's Northern Songs, you know, and all of that stuff is going on. So you've got these two battles for these companies that last all through the year, and it's not the kind of stuff that the Beatles themselves are interested in spending their time on, but they can't agree on who should spend you know, his time doing it, the Eastman's or Klein, whatever. Three to one, it becomes Klein. That same night, Paul records My Dark Hour with Steve Miller. Um, that has to be an indication of something. I mean, obviously, it's a Steve Miller song, but, um, you know, he's involved in that. He does vocals, he does drums, he's bashing away by, by his own description. Um, so I, I think the I think the depression begins to take form there and really, really takes over after Abbey Road is over and John does his divorce announcement and Paul knows that he means it.
let's also take into consideration what Paul's been contributing. He basically is propping up a lot of Abbey Road. He was the guy, as you said, stepping into the sort of power vacuum on, on the get back sessions, which is a bit of a three against one, a little bit of that going on there as well. But, you know, he's had a fantastic 1968 musically, a fantastic 1969, and he's putting all of this into it, and this is what's coming back at him. But look what happens, and maybe this is the effect of depression, because as you say, not only with his own hits, but just you know, dashing off a hit for Badfinger and dashing off a hit for Mary Hopkin. 69 was very kind to him. Interesting in, in the time that he didn't seem to like the White Album uh, when, when Abbey Road was released. He thought, oh, this is much better than the last record. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember him saying that. But maybe it is the, the depression then that suddenly, for the first time ever, I think the McCartney album shows the first time that he can't select his own material. And what I mean by that is I think you could have made a great EP out of that, but there's just so much nothing. And for him to have let off with that is like a swinging bunt. Let me throw a crazy thought out there for you. I see McCartney as uh, Paul and Linda's wedding album. Oh, cool. (laughs) I've never thought of that. Well, it's certainly a bit more commercial. So it kicks off with the lovely Linda. And the photographs inside are from the vacation where they got engaged in Portugal. And then Antigua, all these, you know, family shots. Well, it's something you said earlier, Aid. You said, you mentioned the word reactionary. And that is, you know, the case of what you're saying here about it being his wedding album. It'd be reactionary in a way. And, And likewise with Ram, where he's reacting to Plastic Ono Band. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like you say, in the case of McCartney, he, uh, well, uh, as Alan pointed out earlier, I think most of the album was just, you know, Paul experimenting at home. And then when he went to Abbey Road Studios, he recorded the three or four most polished pieces on the whole album in Every Night, Maybe I'm Amazed, uh, Man We Was Lonely. And he obviously did a couple of songs at Morgan Studios as well, um, which you know sound a cut above what he did at home but like you say all, all this time there's there's not a lot of polish to to what's going on there no lyrics to, to a lot mm. of the songs but yet what i love about the album is um that he stood by it and he and he put he put it out there he said you know this is where i'm at now take it or leave it and uh, well, <laughs> well still not quite as bold as two virgins well obviously not but um <laughs> well, but he well, you know Richard, he really he really they stood weren't vir- those two people were not virgins <laughs> but he he stood by the album as well and you know he came in for a lot of criticism from the press at the time mm. and you know in response to penny valentine for example of uh, disc he actually sent her a um a telegram when he read her review, saying, hold your hand out, you silly girl. Uh, I, don't, I think that you've got it wrong. I don't think that my album is bad. I think you've misunderstood it. Um, mm. And likewise, he, he sent a, a letter into Melody Maker's mailbag uh, from Paul McCartney to Paul McCartney, saying, who does Paul McCartney think he is? Um, and it says things like, does he really believe that he played all the instruments? Let's face it, mailbag, we're not suckers. It's obviously George Martin had a lot to do with it. In fact, if you listen carefully at the end of the third track playing backwards, you can hear George whistling. So <laughs> he's, he's kind of, uh, he's obviously, had, you know, there's a bit of a 
self-conscious mockery going on there but he, he did stand by that album uh, and fair yeah. and fair play to him for doing that but you know you talk about the depression that's sort of creeping up on him there's a, a lot going on here i mean we often see him as almost like superman especially in 68 and 69 right like he musically doesn't seem to be able to put a foot wrong um well with a few exceptions but um we also know, like from, I think John said that he was very insecure about his bass playing. And actually Hugh Padgham told me the same thing. And I think it was McCartney who said how nervous he was when the red light first went on in the studio when they were recording, you know, Love Me Do. So there is this insecurity in him. I mean, that all is all part of the big ego, okay? And so it's quite interesting to see him in some ways coming a little bit unhinged when from the sort of public, normal public perception is of this super confident guy. Yeah, absolutely. I think also another big contributing factor, um, and this happened between 70 and 71, was the amount of flack that Linda was getting from, uh, from the press and from fans. I mean, one disgruntled yeah. fan painted fuck linda on the wall outside cavendish avenue uh, so if that wasn't enough of a uh, a motivation for them to disappear off to scotland and become hermits as everyone thought right. then and what right. other motivation did they need um so so i think there were there were a lot of contributing factors to the depression and and the kind of the down mood in the mccartney camp in 7071 well, also, that much-talked-about meeting in September 69. Which one's that, then? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There, Paul Sounds, I mean, again, it's just a snippet, right? We, we're not hearing the entire day of them interacting. But the bits that we hear, Paul does sound kind of withdrawn, you know, not very assertive, really, almost on the back foot. Sounds like he's a you know, whip dog to me. I mean, he's. I know that... It, it reads a lot more aggressive in print. You say, "Well, George's songs weren't very good," and but he, that's not in the in the tone of his voice at all. It, and and he's wrong. And George sounds far more assertive and in control, saying, ah, "My yeah. songs have been enjoyed." More like almost in a condescending fashion, like, "Where have you been? You're so wrapped up in your own world, you know." Mm. And 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 you're so out of touch with what I do that uh, you didn't know I wrote them three years ago or whatever. So, or you know, paraphrasing, but. Uh, and then with the follow-up meeting, you know, the I want a divorce meeting, in John's own words, Paul's reaction, like his face, you know, turned many colours or it drained of all blood. I know Paul has said that this was kind of coming, mm -hmm. but I think when it happened, it was a real gut punch. I think what he wanted out of the deal was realising in 1967 that they hadn't signed a contract that bound them for another 10 years. I think he naively believed somehow that he could just say, oh, yeah, for Beatles stuff. But, you know, if something's not a Beatle record, if, if Linda and I are doing it, then it's outside of that agreement. And we can keep all the money and it doesn't get tied up in this morass of Apple. And obviously that was not the case. Um, there's there's far less interesting board meeting tapes that float around. There's one where John is is fighting with Klein and, and, uh, and they're, they're talking about how did how are we responsible for the tax on the Bangladesh album or something to, to, to that effect? Do you know the one I'm talking about, uh, Alan, that, that tape of John kind of going over, like, how did the Bangladesh uh, charity project become a, a Beatles record, in a sense, and, and become the liability of the, the tax implications are now being foisted upon the other three who weren't really involved? Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there, there's, I think he somehow thought, 
he could just get out of that contract. And well, I don't think it's any coincidence that on the 4th of September 1969, so this is a few days before the 8th of September meeting, McCartney Productions Limited was formally registered with Companies House in England. So I don't think that's any coincidence that McCartney was looking at his Not next Not that move. he was the first to do that, right? No, because I mean, that company I think songs and Bag had that's already right. been formed, hadn't and they? That, and and to, I mean, to clarify, that company had had been formed uh, prior to that. It, it was just going under a different name. Um, but, you know, this, this was definitely Paul looking to the future. Whether or not that was a future without the Beatles or um, a, a future after the Beatles, if you know what I mean, as, a, as a four solo artists or as four guys that have, have gone their own separate ways, it's very hard to say. But the, the timing for, to me is, uh, you know, there's no coincidence there. Do you think there is any guilt involved in this depression of McCartney's, i.e., Lennon would talk about the hurt he felt that McCartney, through his father-in-law or whatever, was buying shares uh, behind John's back, behind the group's back, to gain an advantage because of a a loophole in what the sales price was. I've never, you know, the business parts of it I glaze over a little bit, but, but was there a little bit of guilt like i kind of screwed this up not that he would ever say anything about it publicly but i don't think think so i don't think he felt guilty about that i I, you know he offered a justification um which was uh, well i wanted to buy more stock and um this is our company why shouldn't i buy us which is and then he did very something similar, similar in the 80s didn't yes he? exactly the same argument in the 80s when the others uh were a little upset that he negotiated a new contract with Capital uh, and wanted extra points on Beatles sales um, that only he was going to get, not not the others. And uh, and they really took offense at that. And his argument was, well, I could have said I want points on Beach Boys albums, but I wanted points on Beatles albums, so that was what I negotiated. You know, and, yeah, and it's the negotiation in this case and the purchase in the earlier instance. It, the problem is he doesn't tell them. Right. right. And I think he also yeah. doesn't feel guilty about it. I was just going to say, it's like the Godfather saying, isn't it? You know, it's not personal, it's just business. Right. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I would like to note that uh, Adrian said that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there was any guilt involved there because if if he felt guilty about the 1969 transaction, he wouldn't have used the same reasoning uh, (laughs) in the 1980s. I I, I don't think he felt guilty about that. I think he he was probably also really feeling apart from the actual explanation he gave that um, this is getting to be a bit dog-eat-dog here at Apple. And yeah. uh, you know they're they're not they're not listening to me about Klein, and uh, so I'm doing what I want. I think you know this all for one, one for all thing. Uh, you know they're um, the rest of them aren't abiding by that. Why should I? You know, I, so I don't think there was guilt. I think it also might have been um, a little expression of his anger at the way things were going. When we started off as Beatles. You know, we we knew nothing about the business side of it. And one thing that does happen in the business is that uh, if you're the artist or if you're the singer or something, you do get agents and people, you know, who are on the business end of it. And uh, sometimes you can get a bit carved up, you know. So that we've had a lot of 
we've been involved in a lot of contracts and a lot of things, you know. It's all it's all very boring, but we've we've had a, uh, a lot of contracts and stuff that uh, we have to try and straighten out, you know, now. So that we've become a bit more business-minded, you know, but I still can't stand business, you know. I'd much rather, you know, the four of us really just a rock band, you know, but we've got to actually sort of think now when we sign a contract, what does it mean, you know. It's all, it's growing up, you know. You've got to do it one time in your life. Following the divorce meeting, not long after that, he retreats to Scotland, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Then he's stalked there by someone, and and, and he loses. Oh, that's it. a great piece of film. Yeah, yeah, Terence uh, Terence Spencer. Yeah. This is a very this is a, a really weird <laughs> thing. Um, Terence Spencer and uh, Dorothy Bacon, who was the reporter uh, from Life magazine, who was apparently, a, you know, a nice little middle-aged lady in her 50s, uh, 
trudged through the the marshes to get to Paul's house, and they finally get there. And you know, Spencer is someone Paul knows. I mean, he he first photographed the Beatles in 1963, um, and in fact, Apple currently owns all but a couple of his Beatles shots. Uh, he knocks on the door with Dorothy Bacon. Paul is just livid. He recognizes Spencer and yet throws a bucket of kitchen slop at them, misses, um, and then goes and punches Spencer. Um, and Spencer uh, turns to Dorothy Bacon and says, "We, uh, I think we've worn out our welcome, and they sort of <laughs> begin hightailing it out. And uh, Paul, after a few minutes, thinks, mm, yeah, this is a bad look for me. I'm the you know, super PR guy of the Beatles. I can't, uh, I can't let this go out because Spencer took a shot. I can't let people see who I really am. <laughs> well, I can't see pe- let people see me as a very angry, hurt guy. Uh, you know, he was there. He was there. You know, he had just sort of like retreated into his hole, so to speak, to kind of you know lick his wounds and recover, figure out what he's going to do next, and he yeah. felt entitled to privacy, which anybody probably would um and then he chased after them and uh said listen you know i'll give you an interview if you give me the film back um and offered them a bunch of linda's pictures uh which ultimately is what they printed now strangely enough if you look in the november 7th a 1969 issue of Life magazine with Paul on the cover, uh, mm. Paul and Linda, and I guess Mary on the cover. If you look in the uh, in the table of contents uh, where they give all the credits, they credit Robert Graham as the photographer, and mm. uh, no one seems to know actually who that was. I mean, Spencer worked for Life. Um, he was mainly a a war photographer uh you know this the photographing the beatles is supposed to be the sort of frivolous stuff in his career um although obviously potentially lucrative um but you know paul basically spencer didn't take the pictures uh graham didn't take the pictures if he even existed and linda did and yet life didn't credit Linda. So it, it's mm. all kind of a big mystery you know but uh, but but the essential thing is Paul's reaction to Terence Spencer, who was not a stranger to him, wasn't part of this prompted this visit prompted by what uh, this strange conspiratorial thing that whipped up by WKNR in the in the fall of '69, which is the whole Paul is dead mess. Wasn't right. that one of the reasons they went up to see if he was actually? Yeah. Dead that or was not? the principal reason. Yeah. What they got actually in the you know probably less than five minute interview he granted to Bacon. What they got was a scoop that neither they nor their editors nor the readers saw. Right. Which is Paul saying, the Beatle thing is over. Uh, it's, we exploded it, and it's because of what we did and what other people did, but it's over. And, you know, just sort of mentions that in the middle of talking about how, you know, John is married to Yoko, he's married to Linda, he's doing his stuff, he just wants to do his music. And it apparently didn't raise an eyebrow so isn't that amazing it's life magazine it's life magazine yeah and uh you know it was this is uh only 
a little more than a month after they all agreed to keep quiet about it, you know, because John came and announced that he wanted a divorce the day after they signed their new contract with EMI. And Klein argued, not unreasonably, that if they now announce that they're breaking up, it will look like he negotiated in bad faith. And, you know, gosh, the image of Alan Klein negotiating in bad faith. I mean, what would history make of that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or was I, I prefer to call him Rhonda Klein. I think that was the best, uh, you know, in the Ruddles. His left hand never knew who his right hand was doing. But, you know, Paul is reacting a little bit like a cornered rat, okay? And I don't mean sort of, you know, compare him to a rat, but it's just uh, he's feeling ganged up on. Mm. And, and, and so, yeah, he here, he gets physically aggressive. Not the first time in 69, because he'd also reacted aggressively with Ringo when he came around mm. the house to try and sort things out. Or 70, or 71. In both of in both of those years, his name came up in court papers for altercations with various fans, uh, people on the street. Right. There's a long list of McCartney misdemeanors throughout that period. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I didn't know. So, what uh, he was getting like charged? Oh yeah. Some cases were simply reported by fans, but in other cases he was charged, only for the charges to be dropped at a later date. So in September 69, he was found guilty in his absence of driving without due care and attention in Bath. In June 71, a young American fan, Carolyn Mitchell, she arrived at Campbelltown Police Station with a bloodied nose and wanted to press charges against him. Charges were later dropped. Again, in June 1971, a case was brought against him for use of offensive and obscene language in London. Charges were dropped in that case. And finally, in February 1972, the owner of a hotel in Hull caught an accidental elbow to the nose. Again, no charges were pressed. Now, in most cases, these were just alleged incidents. And some of these were probably just fans trying to make a name for themselves. But, you know, based on what we know about what happened with the reporters from Life magazine, um, you know, the, there probably was some frustration there at the fact that he just wanted to be left alone. Do you think switching away from a reliance on whiskey and amping up the pot, which I don't know a lot of aggressive people start taking a swing at you after they've smoked a joint. Do you think there was anything to do with that, that he kind of, I mean, very what hard would to, change his view? It's very hard, to, very hard to say, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's, an, there's, it's very clear why Paul and Linda went up to High Park Farm. Uh, they wanted to get away from London. They were fed up of the press attention. They were fed up of the fans. They were fed up of the business meetings, you know, the heavy business meetings, as Paul says. Uh, and they went to Scotland. And if you've ever visited there yourself, I mean, you couldn't be further away from London if you visit Campbelltown. It is in the middle of nowhere. The farm is very isolated. So if, if somebody comes trudging up your driveway, they're either a crazed fan or a journalist. And I think one of them... Paul would welcome with open arms and the others well, well maybe not necessarily all the time um, and 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 the others if he was in the wrong mood you know maybe they'd get sent packing with a few harsh words um, but in the case of one girl you know a uh, supposedly a bloodied nose um, but yeah like I say the, the, all, all, all for the reason of the fact that they they just wanted some privacy like Alan said earlier they, you know, they didn't want to be pestered by people. They just wanted to, uh, g you know, get away from 
you know, he wanted to get away from being a Beatle. How long were they there in Campbelltown? Uh, at the end of 69. Yeah. From October 22nd to, gosh, it was probably almost December when they came back. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, when is the period when he hits the bottle? A little earlier than that, he yeah. was starting already. Um, and I think he was doing that during part of that trip. And I think that he began coming out of it during that trip because um, it seems pretty clearly you can't get anything up there probably there's no package we, stores we get get scotch <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah there's dist- um, distilleries up there <laughs> yeah um you know it, it was during that trip i think that he really began to think about this idea of borrowing a studer uh, portable you know recording machine from apple and actually doing some stuff i mean with linda encouraging him um, because, you know, put yourself in Linda's position now. You know, she's married Paul McCartney of the Beatles, and now she's sort of finds herself up in the country, which she liked, um, but with this guy who is in bed all day, you know, drinking full bottles of scotch uh, as, uh, you know, as if it's water. Uh, so that can't have been that pleasant. And um, I, I think that, she kind of took it in hand a bit, you know, to kind of get him out of this without, you know, you know, this is something that I, that I think was was uh, was new for her, you know, having to get someone out of this kind of funk. Um, and she clearly managed it reasonably well. So, uh, you know, because by by December, he is recording McCartney in his uh, music room at Cavendish Avenue. So um, she, she must have uh, straightened him up. And he credits her with, with a lot of, um, you know, what went into him coming out of that um, soused period, as one might say. Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time.
there's an interview that Paul gave where he said, I was going through a hard period. I exhibited all the classic symptoms of the unemployed, the redundant man. First, you don't shave, and it's not to grow a groovy beard. It's because you cannot be fucking bothered. Anger, deep, deep anger sets in with everything, with yourself, number one, and with everything in the world, number two. And justifiably so, because I was being screwed by my mates. So I didn't shave for quite a while. I didn't get up. Mornings weren't for getting up. I might get up and stay on the bed a bit and not know where to go and get back into bed. Then if I did get up, I'd have a drink straight out of bed. I'd never been like that. There are lots of people who've been through worse things than that. But for me, this was bad news because I'd always been the kind of guy who could really pull himself together and think, oh, fuck it. But at that time, I felt I'd outlived my usefulness. This was the overall feeling that it was good while I was in the Beatles. I was useful and I could play bass for their songs. I could write songs for them to sing and for me to sing, and we could make records of them. But the minute I wasn't with the Beatles anymore, it became really very difficult. I think that's in many years from now. That comes back to the what, what you were saying, uh, what we were talking about earlier on. You know, when I said that Paul almost had kind of a lyrical pr- paralysis in a way. Yeah, I, I yeah. think a, a lot of that was um, as a result of this, you know, depression and alcoholism, and, and like he said, this feeling of uselessness at the time. Um, you know, c- could he d- deliver another Penny Lane? Could he write? Uh, could he deliver another album like uh, Sergeant Pepper? And I think those kind of feelings of uh, paranoia and uselessness, uh, you know, that's that's kind of what we're coming out around this period, and probably why we ended up seeing so many instrumentals on the McCartney album was because we, we now know the answers to those questions. Yeah, as that's well. right. But I think also there's the. the for the next, th- well, starting with his first album and carrying right through, I think, until uh, Red Rose Speedway, where I think things improved greatly. Uh, it seems like Ram is is an exception. Uh, it's like an oasis because on the other, it's bookended by the, the first album, which, as I said, I don't really like, and 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 the, the something that I find is really truly horrible, which is Wildlife, and the decision making process in that. I mean, I, I think as a conceptual album, I certainly in. You know, he was inspired by uh, the Dylan album. What was it, New Morning? It was New Morning, yeah. Inspired by this idea of whipping something together in a week, you yeah. know. And and interesting, too, to me, that maybe it was shortage of material, but uh, one of the heaviest songs pointed right at Lennon to me, uh, Dear Friend, which was written earlier in this process. He skips over that one on Ram and decides to use it on, on Wildlife. You know, it's a fairly depressing record, too. I mean, a, a kind of pretty little melody mixed in there, but but, but a, a really sad record. And, um, you know, why he chose to record it at all, I, I mean, like, it came out so much later. I, I mean, do you guys have any, any insights to that? A lot of people believe Dear Friend was written around the Ram period, but it was coming out of the Ram period into Wildlife, and it was written really as a, a kind of white flag song to John. Uh, after all the the beef they'd had between them, uh, between Imagine and Ram. Dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Does it really mean so much to you? Are you afraid? 
when you say that he basically, through depression, lost the plot lyrically, he never got it back, though. Ooh, that's harsh. Wow, that's, that's a little rough, <laughs> yeah. Richard. I, I think decision-making, I, I see, when you say lyrically, I, I, I guess in those instances, but what I, what I saw him struggle with far more was decision-making. Because mm-hmm. under stress, when, he, you know, when they do Band on the Run eventually, it's a great album. And it couldn't have been under worse Yeah, but are conditions. you saying that his lyrics through the 70s, for instance, anywhere match the standard that he set lyrically the previous decade? I don't, I don't know. think it did for. I don't think it did for any of them. I think they didn't have that dynamic anymore. Do you think John's matched everything he did? I mean, outside of walls and bridges, not everything. But but he did have his moments. He had his moments. So did George. But Paul, they they were few and far between. George, I think, got better. Actually, I think he's the one guy that at the end of his career had the most. At the end of his life, had the most legitimate career. But but I, I think he's the only one that got better. Maybe you could say Ringo, too, of course, because he only wrote like two songs. (laughs) But, I mean, so just by sheer volume, he got better. But I don't think John did anything outside of Walls and Bridges. I don't remember him doing anything that matched Beatle times. Well, I I mean, he's got some terrific lyrics on the first two post-Beatles albums, Plastic Ono Band and Imagine. Yeah, I suppose. I I guess I got to give you. But I I kind of consider Plastic Ono Band a Beatle record. I mean, it's right on the heels of of it all. Yeah, but it's a Lennon record. (laughs) <laughs> it is, but he, it was basically written during Beatle times, wasn't it? Some of it, not all of it. I, I've got to say, I would honestly say that I think that Uncle Albert is lyrically as good as Penny Lane. It's a lo- I, I love that song, by the way. I, I don't particularly care for the back end of it, as I've said, the, the Albert Halsey thing. I think if he had just faded it away the way he did on the TV special, mm. I, I, I think it's lovely. And I think sonically, Ram, I, it is just a great headphone record. I even like, you know... Dear boy, I mean the, the the way the vocals are fading in and out of things, I, I, and instrumentally, I I think it's some really lovely piece. Now let me ask you guys, mm-hmm. it, what gets skipped over in this period is this bizarre recording that McCartney makes, uh, Percy Thrills Thrillington, sure, <laughs> which is this. I, I don't know if even our audience is horribly aware of this one, but I mean, it must have cost him a few bucks at a time when he you know cash flow was a problem. Uh, the Percy Thrills uh, Thrillington album is is the entire Ram album as instrumentals done at Abbey Road, hmm. um, and it doesn't come out for six years. And when it does, it's it was absolutely invisible. It was just an indulgence that album, wasn't it? I mean, it was what, three days in the studio, I think, in June '71, and you know it was just a, a bunch of session musicians. Richard Hewson, uh, he uh, arranged everything. And yeah, who had worked on he would, Houston was part of the whole thing with like early Apple. Wasn't he, he did, involved uh, Mary Hopkins? He did. He did some work on um, uh, Mary's records and Mary let Hopkins it let it and let it be. Yeah, like I say, I think it. I think it was just a, an indulgence from his point of view. He came home with this kind of mad idea that he would um, record an instrumental version of his album, uh, and he just, just went decisions. In, and, 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 and and let's face it. I mean, w- did EMI bill him for it? I doubt it. I can't imagine that Paul McCartney would have received a bill from just from Sir Joseph Lockwood for that album. I'm right. Sure, I'm sure that they would have, you know, co- covered. Right, because they they were freaking out over the cost of RAM, mm. but it it wasn't. I mean, they were picking up the bill. Yeah, I mean, the cost of RAM was probably vast compared to uh, Thrillington, which was three days in the studio and a bit of mixing. But yeah. still, three days yeah. the other three Beatles had to help pay for. I wonder was he sticking it to him somehow? Yeah. 
Now we're going to have another version. But you say indulgence. I mean, there were many indulgences, not just for McCartney in his post-Beatles career, but mm. John and George certainly as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the film projects Paul's done over the years that have never been released. Uh, one, mm. hand, one hand clapping is the case yeah. in point. The fact that that yeah. wasn't, wasn't released as part of the Venus and Mars box set. Um, I've been told on good authority it was because the, the quality of the video wasn't good enough because it was uh, shot on pneumatic video and transferred to yeah. film. So it didn't look very good. Um, but yeah, I think it was just one of those projects that he fancied doing and it was a distraction at a time when he needed a distraction. So why not? That actually, in a way, I think goes back to the McCartney album. I think McCartney album started as something like that. It was something he felt like doing uh, at that time, you know, for various reasons that are pretty easy to understand, I think, for all of us, um, you know, he's coming out of this this funk and he needs to have a project to focus on but I, I suspect that at the very start of that project it was not necessarily going to be released it was going to be let's see how this goes now right through this period of course he's dealing with the whole Klein issue right and it's interesting I never realized how much that was dicking around with his mind as well another quote of his I was going through a bad time, what I suspect was almost a nervous breakdown. I remember lying awake at nights, shaking, which has not happened to me since. One night I'd been asleep and awoke, and I couldn't lift my head off the pillow. My head was down in the pillow. I thought, Jesus, if I don't do this, I'll suffocate. I remember hardly having the energy to pull myself up, but with a great struggle, I pulled my head up and lay on my back and thought, that was a bit near. I just couldn't do anything. I had so much in me that I couldn't express. And it was just very nervy times. Very, very difficult. So I eventually went and said, I want to leave. You can all get on with Klein and everything. Just let me out. And they said, no, we're not going to let you go. Because Klein had said, look, he produced those were the days and stuff. Like James Taylor, same idea. Why let him go? I remember having one classic conversation with George Harrison. I said, look, George, I want to get off the label. And George ended the conversation. And as I say it now, I almost feel like I'm lying with the devil's tongue. But I swear George said to me, you'll stay on the racking label. Hare Krishna. That's how it was. That's how the times were. <laughs> and, and then he said, I was having dreams that Klein was a dentist. I remember telling everyone and they all laughed. But I said, no, this was a fucking scary dream. I said, I can't be with the guy any longer. He's in my dreams now and he's a baddie. He was giving me injections in my dreams to put me out. And I was thinking, fucking hell, I've just become powerless. There's nothing I can do to stop this rot. So I decided to just get out, but they wouldn't let me out. They held me to that contract. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, if we are to take him at his word, that's amazing how much this got inside his head. Not, mm. I'm not saying I'm shocked, but still. Yeah, and he can uh, he could smell Klein's teeth a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the fact that, you know, to get out, he had to sue them. And that was something that messed with him quite a bit too because he knew how that looked he knew that he would be held up as the member of the Beatles who's suing the other Beatles it's you know there's there's no way around it although you know shortly after the case uh was over the the, the um the court appearances and uh 
which which Paul in which Paul prevailed. The other three appealed, and then they dropped their appeal. But shortly after, Ringo said, uh, you know, after not seeing Paul for a year, and they ran into each other at I guess uh, Mick Jagger's wedding. Uh, and he said he understood why Paul had to do it. So, you know, I guess the others sort of knew that he wanted to get out, and the only way he's going to be allowed to get out is if he can have the partnership dissolved in court. Um, but other things are going on for him at this time. He's starting to do RAM. Um, he's trying to get away from... London to work on RAM in New York and then in LA. And uh, he focuses on a single. And uh, Adrian and I were talking about this this morning, and it's, it's, uh, it's really kind of interesting how that came about and what it was. So I'll turn it over to Adrian. Well, yeah, like Alan said, you know, if, if you're going to break up the Beatles in court, um, why not put a spin on it? So what does Paul do? He, uh, he decides to put out a single on the day that they're due in court, on the 19th of February, 71. And that single is another day. So he goes into the studio uh, and he's working with an engineer called Dixon Van Winkle. And he says yeah. to Dixon Van Winkle, we're going to release a, a single, but I've got no idea what to release. Uh, this is how messed up his head was with the Beatles court case. So Dixon Van Winkle says, oh, well, I think another day is fantastic. So Paul says, OK, let's go with another day. So they mix it on the 8th of February, I think it was, uh, just 10 days before it was due out, 11 days before it was due out in the UK. And the mixing session lasted so long that they were ejected from the studio, which was Studio A1, uh, A&R Studios. And they had to go down the bl- a few blocks to Studio R2. Um, and they filled five, five reels with mono and stereo mixes. And the mono mix is so lousy that it creates distortion on radio playback. So they end up back in the studio again a few days later to remix it. So you can just see this kind of um, how it was all kind of unraveling in in this attempt to rush a single out. They threw Paul McCartney out of a studio. Yeah, I believe so. According to Dixon Van Winkle, they had uh, a major client booked in. Uh, for another session, so they had to they had to go down the road. Now, didn't Van Winkle also say that they pressed up like a hundred copies immediately, sent them out That's to right. the radio stations, yeah. and then when he heard it over the radio, he thought, "My God, the bass is way pumped up." That's right. Yeah, I mean, the, because basically, you know, Dixon Van Winkle's told me this story himself. The studio that they were working in, uh, he wasn't very familiar with it. Uh, and it had a different set of speakers, you know, a different layout to the studios that he was used to. And Paul kept on saying, more bass, more bass. And then when they got the thing pressed to acetate and it was sent out to radio stations, uh, it was distorting. So they went back into the studio four days later and they remixed it again. So this is, like I say, to me, it kind of demonstrates what a frenzy he was in to try and get this thing out. Uh, for the day that he was doing court in England, because he he wanted to put some spin on the breakup of the Beatles, they they also announced uh, coincidentally on the day that he appeared in court in London uh, that Linda was pregnant for the second time. So this is you know Paul playing the ultimate PR guy. Every day she takes a morning bath, she wets her hair, wraps a towel around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair. It's just another day. Stepping into shoes 
pocket of her raincoat It's just another day At the office where the papers grow She takes a break Drinks another coffee And she finds it hard to stay awake It's just another day funny thing is that, you know, Paul didn't know what song to choose for a single. Dixon mm. Van Winkle picks it, and it's another day. And so what happens is the day that the court case begins, you know, in court, uh, you know, when they filed it, but when the first day of testimony, um, Paul releases a song, the refrain of which is, it's just another day. <laughs> right. And that got right. him into another court case. About yeah. whether Linda actually co-wrote it. 
interesting story on another day as well. Um, something we've uh, uncovered through our research is that it was actually composed in two sections. The first section we're familiar with from the get back sessions, the uh, the kind of um, the verse, but the refrain from it, um, the the so sad element, was actually composed for a film. Which film? Out well, of curiosity. We, uh, We'd love to go into particulars, but people are just going to have to go out and buy a book to find oh, out more. Oh, that's <laughs> right. There's a book coming out. I forgot about that. <laughs> I love that single. I think Mr. Van Winkle was right. Uh, the flip side, though, uh, I don't know. I never warmed up to that one. Oh, woman, oh, why? Yeah, never, never. Not one of my biggies. Brilliant drum sound. His vocal performance, I think, is fantastic, but mm. I just didn't seem to go anywhere. My criticisms of post-Beatles, Paul, when it comes to music don't tend to be the performances apart from we get more recent the vocals but uh you know it's not really about the musical performances it's about the material well as i say this is that period where he's kind of making to my mind he's making weird decisions or bad decisions or not that that is the biggest departure i see from the beatles where they were almost unerring i mean they i just like never made a mistake listen to those sessions for that means a lot. You know, they try the song 50 different ways and they, no, just not working. We'll give it to somebody, you know, and they're doing that when they're so much, so much younger. Why did that ability leave Paul? I guess in this period, it was because of this transition, this horrible messing with his head and depression and the breakup. I think that afflicted all of them to varying extents, actually. But mm. Paul's, you know, Paul's volume of output and the longevity, there's just been more of that. Could be. Yeah. We have also, when he releases the McCartney album, of course, there's the whole clash with Let It Be, which is why there was the dust up with Ringo. So once he gets that album out, does the depression continue right through 70 into 71 and the high court case? Absolutely, yeah. And how does it manifest itself? How do we know about it? Like I said before, I think the fact that he was having altercations with fans in June 71 still... Uh, is is a good reflection of where his head was at at that time. Wow. I think until Wings came together, uh, you know, and even and to be honest with you, even when Wings came together, if you listen to the uh, interview he did with Chris, Chris Charlesworth in November 1971, he's there to promote Wings' first album, and he spent almost half of the interview ranting about Alan Klein. So there had to be s some level of depression that was still there, even when Wings came together. So. Post McCartney through Ram, mm -hmm. in terms of the moods and how it's impacting, you, you spoke a bit about, you know, with the music uh, and some of the decision making there. Is this the period when he gets really heavily into smoking the weed, comes off the booze? I mean, it, it has been said that uh, the, the transition was from scotch and coke into more, you know, heavy marijuana smoking. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that that does seem very very likely. So, in terms uh, of his mood lifting, in in a general sense, well, he said himself, hasn't he, in interview that um, when you have a drink, you have a hangover. When you smoke pot, you don't. So, I think that there's probably, uh, like you say, a shift from that kind of aggressive, drunken behaviour to that more mellow. I've just had a a joint or two with Linda vibe going But, but on. you're saying it's still June of 71, he's still losing his temper. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But, but like I say, it, it's very hard to say that one incident 
is reflective of his overall mood at that time. But mm. I don't know, like I say, the fact that he was still venting about Klein by November 71 shows that um, th- there was still a lot of beef going on there. So we can see where the mood changes, Aid. then. Following this timeline, what's the one thing that changes in McCartney's life and career? By February 72, he's back out on the road. And yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe the, the, the simple physical exhausting act of having to put a band together, travel around together, play together, maybe that was what he needed to get out of this... But- What's happening musically? I mean, you guys have been really digging deep into this subject, and mm-hmm. the first volume covers the years 1969 to 73, right? Right. Yeah. So what would you see then as the reason that when we get to the first Wings album, Wildlife, that that is now even weaker again? You know, that's weaker than the first two albums. What, what do you think is going on? Well, they were a new band, and he had this concept that he wanted it to be, you know, as if it was just live in the studio and, you know, for the most part, not entirely. But uh, I think he wanted to capture that energy and freshness of a new group coming together and just sort of miscalculated on a number of the the things he was doing. Um, because, you know, again, the next one is Red Rose Speedway, and that goes back to the material for Ram. You know, some of those things that weren't finished, that uh, that they touched up again, remixed, uh, considered for Red Rose Speedway, which was going to be a double album um, with a lot of those, those older tracks, and some of them were still dropped. So he had, I mean, Wildlife is, is in a way an anomaly. Um you know, but yeah, it's the I, only I, album just called a Wings album, by the way, isn't it? Because that went to Paul McCartney and Wings with uh, Red Rose Speedway. You know, to have by the way, ex Beatle. You know, I, I wonder. I mean, I think the material was pretty weak, but it's interesting that it's not Paul McCartney and Wings on Wildlife. It is just Wings. Well, at the time of Wildlife, I mean, keep in mind that. They had been playing together, you know, fairly briefly before they went in to record that, and they had a concept which that Paul was promoting to the others that we are going to be a band. We're not going to be me as the star and you guys as the backing group. We're going to be a band and we're going to split everything like a band does. And that's not actually how it turned out. But that was what he told them and he probably believed that that's what he wanted to do. But at the same time, keep in mind a lot of his money is tied up in Apple. And uh, as with 1969 leading up to McCartney, uh, during the Ram period, you've got, you know, at the beginning of it, you've got the court case on. And then when the court case is resolved in Paul's favor, uh, Paul is waiting for the fruits of this resolution in his favor, i.e. being let out of the partnership, which still wasn't happening. And so when we get to that November 71 interview where, you know, the, there are a few interviews from that period. Uh, the, the Charlesworth one is, is, is one, but there was a, another the same day for, I think, Record Mirror? Yeah, Record yeah. Mirror, Mike Hennessy. Right, yeah. Yep. There yeah. was another the same day for Record Mirror, which is very similar. He's 
clearly very angry, and it's coming out in an interview. And there are not that many McCartney interviews where that's the case. You know, he's usually much more diplomatic. And what's going on is he's won the case, basically, or he's won what he wants, you know, to be let go, and no one's letting him go. They're still discussing and discussing. And uh, November 71, he went to see John eventually, probably after these interviews and uh, in New York. And at the end of that meeting, according to both Paul and Linda, John had agreed to sign the papers to dissolve the partnership and let Paul go. And, you know, it still took a few more years for that to happen. Uh, So, you know, he's what we're hearing is his frustration. And all through this period of RAM being recorded, there are those frustrations going on. There's the, the, the feelings about the court case and how he looks as the one suing them. There's the court case going on. He's come to America to work on this album in New York and Los Angeles. Um, as, as Adrian said, uh, it was basically Lee Eastman's idea that he go to Los Angeles to get even further away, put himself into another scene where, you know, he's away from the Beatles, from London, and even away from the Eastmans, who were his lawyers. Uh, so, you know, so that's what's going on. That's why he's, uh, you know, he's, he's throwing himself into this to try in, in a way to put that other stuff on the side and just focus on some music. Um, and then after that, he decides uh, he's, he's happy with the experience of recording Ram and working with Denny Sywell and Hugh McCracken. Uh, Spinoza sort of bowed out fairly early because the sessions were going on longer than he was originally contracted for, and he had other jobs. Um, and so Hugh McCracken took over and is on a lot of Ram. And, uh, and he invited McCracken and Sywell to Campbelltown to uh, so, uh, ostensibly for a vacation. Uh, and when they got there, Paul is talking about forming a band with the two of them. And they spent basically a couple of weeks jamming working on this band idea so um so the band is as as you say uh, he did kind of need to be out on the road that was that was the paul he wanted to be you know the guy on the stage doing his thing with a band um and so that probably did sort of help uh, in, in terms of the depression but um you know wildlife was the first product of it talking before about him being isolated and it's like the three against one in many years from now he said talk about traumas not only was the Beatles broken up 
this fabest of groups and these nicest of people, the other three Beatles, these true buddies of mine from way, way back, these truest friends of mine were now my firmest enemies overnight. Ever since I was a child, I'd been in this group. I'd grown up in this group. This was my school, my family, my life. John Eastman said, you've got to do it this way. There's no other way. I said, I can't do it. Can you imagine the perception of the world? I know what public relations I'm going to get. I know how the press will perceive it. I was just trying to walk away from them and keep it low key, but I couldn't. I knew I had to do it. It was either that or letting Klein have the whole thing, all the fortune we'd worked for all our lives since we were children. So he was basically, yeah, he was just maneuvered into this position and he felt completely trapped. Turns out he was kind of right too about Klein, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, without a doubt. Again, though, it was how he went about it. It wasn't the message, it was the delivery of it. I agree with him when he says there was no other way. I mean, I'm sure they had all the legal experts looking at it. I'm talking earlier than that. I'm not talking about him making that decision. I'm just saying what you know led to all this. They, they all basically handled it wrong. It's good to have a, a benevolent despot uh, in your life, you know, or, or somebody like a Brian Epstein who loves you, you know, um, and makes decisions for you based on irrational things like emotions. And when you have somebody like uh, Mr. Klein, who's the scorpion on the frog's back going across the river, it's, it is what it is. You can't blame him for being what he is. Mm-hmm. He's got an agenda, and it wasn't the Beatles. It was him. If we're going to sort of classify a depression, I mean, I know it's not any one thing, as you said, and you can still be having down days, but in terms of the deep depression, when do you think that ended? I think when he got on the road. I think the confidence comes back. He gets, uh, you know, soon after he gets a hit with uh, My Love. Red Rose Speedway did certainly was a much better album than the previous Wildlife had been. Uh, he's, it's starting to kind of gel. And then, of course, I think with... Getting back with George Martin and doing uh, the theme to uh, the, the James Bond picture, Live and Let Die, I think suddenly his confidence is back, and he's kind of been distracted from the things. I mean, um, there's still plenty of pot going on, of course. Yeah. I honestly think the depression continued all the way through to uh, the uh, success of Band on the Run. I th- really? I, yeah, yeah. I think, the, I, I think if you look at all the... Um, I mean, other than, say, My Love being a, a huge success, Red Rose Speedway didn't do very well. Uh, right. Wildlife certainly didn't. Um, and I think that really only when Band on the Run came out and had such you know, incredible worldwide success did Paul finally get his mojo back. And you, know, you, you can hear in the interviews he does when he's in, say, Nashville in uh, June, July 1974, that's a man that's full of himself you know he's no, he's number one in america he's in a, he's number one in england he's dropped from being number one in america and he's gone back to being number one in america that that album to me was what got paul's mojo back uh, and i think you know if you look at things like the the james paul mccartney special they did uh, that took a critical hammering um the european tour they did in 72 you know they were getting hammered by the press all across the continent the british tour did okay so yeah i'd say band on the run mm-hmm. so at the beginning of that project then when the band basically quits on him mm-hmm. if he was still depressed at that point that must have sent him plummeting yeah but what a thing to fire him up he, he had to yeah. he had to get his a game back because he's in lagos nigeria 
he's yeah. you know the meters running as far as emi are concerned he's recording an album and they would pretty much rehearsed most of that album before they'd gone to lagos so he had a pretty good idea of of what they were going to put to tape so so yeah and and then obviously all the kind of trials and tribulations they had in lagos with the you know being held up at knife point paul collapsing the incident with uh you know fella ransom cutie all of that stuff that was going on over in nigeria um to overcome all of that adversity and have a a massive global number one smash with band on the run yeah, yeah I, I've, I'm, I'm guessing he felt pretty good after all of that and even didn't Lennon had good things to say about Band on the Run, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he said, well, that's the first one that sort of worked. <laughs> I think that's how yeah. we put it. But, but I mean, I think that was high praise coming from Lennon. Yeah, Band on the Run was really a sea change in terms of the public response, too. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, McCartney came out and FM stations in New York played the whole album start to finish a couple of times, uh, you know, when they had it in advance right before it was released. And, um, you know, there was some excitement about it. But very quickly, uh, the, the world sort of split into John Camps and Paul Camps, you know, and you, you, you were one or the other. Hadn't they already split into those camps in about 1970 after the first solo albums came out? Yeah, they split into those camps actually around the time the McCartney album came out. I mean, the the album itself still had some you know advanced excitement about it, uh, but yeah. it once it became clear that the Beatles had broke up and that it was you know it was you know Paul versus the others and all that all these things that. We were just getting the barest facts about uh, basically the press and the public both chose sides and the press um, really chose John's side mostly. Uh, You Mm. know, certainly what was then called the underground press, you know, John was very cool, revolutionary, peace campaigner, um, not to mention voluble i mean you get john for an interview you've got a good couple of hours of great stuff and you know i know it's like like as a journalist it's like having a jumbo jet land in your backyard (laughs) yeah you know and as a listener i mean you know howard smith used to play these interviews that would go for you know a couple of hours and i'd be you know sitting there with my little tape recorder lapping it all up and uh you know and we were not getting paul's case presented to us in quite the same way um And so, you know, there definitely was, I mean, I got, after, after our book was announced, I got an email from someone who had, uh, you know, gotten a graduate degree from Liverpool Hope University, uh, and he sent me his thesis, and his thesis was to prove that there was a press bias towards John in the very early years after the Beatles breakup. And as, you know, as someone who was there, I, I'm thinking, well, y- you have to prove that? I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so self-evident. Um, but it, isn't that reflective also then of McCartney's depression that this prime PR guy was basically outmaneuvered, whether it was willingly or not, but he was mm-hmm. outmaneuvered in the publicity states. Well, yeah, that's why that's why I mentioned it. Everything he did, he was slagged, you know, for. 
I think the, th- the the secret weapon with John there was he is uh, I've discussed this with you know Mark Lewis a couple of times. He is the one person to me that's as much fun listening to him talk as it is sing. And Maka, as great as he is with uh, PR and always was, that's not the case with him because it, it was usually so measured. I mean, there's a handful of times when you, there's a McCartney interview that makes you laugh or makes you you know you really enjoy it as entertainment. Uh, there's a very small handful of those, whereas pretty much every time you put a microphone in front of Lennon, I'm thoroughly entertained. And I don't think McCartney could control that, but he may have been aware of it, and that's a battle he could not win. Well, I'm sure for this latest book, Alan, you've got all of Paul's quotes categorized under your <laughs> numbering system. <laughs>
It's interesting what you say about Paul being reactionary to Lennon. That rippled through a lot of things that were going on in, in the narrative yeah. of our books. Uh, Give Ireland Back to the Irish is another example of that. I think it was yeah. in sort of November 71. John said something in the music press like, join the Rock Liberation Front while you can. Alan and I have discussed this at length, and we feel that Give Ireland Back to the Irish wasn't just a reaction to what was going on in Ireland. It was Paul saying, okay, I'm going to join the Rock Liberation Front, and I'm going to show John I can do a protest song. It was, it was another reaction to something that was going on between the two of them. And this following the reaction of too many people. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and this was all a reaction to uh, some crazy stunt that was pulled by, uh, I think it's A.J. Weberman, wasn't it, of the Rock Liberation Front, who held a mock funeral for Paul McCartney uh, in August 71. And I think when John referred to the Rock Liberation Front, he was poking fun at the fact that he knew that they'd done this stunt outside, uh, I think it was John Eastman's place in New York. Yeah. Um, so like I say, and then in February 72, the uh, Bloody Sunday Massacre happened. Paul was clearly, you know, very angry about what was going on in Ireland. He wanted to, you know, give a reaction to it musically. But at the same time, he was also answering a question that had been posed by John four months earlier. Well, John also was sort of taunting him directly by comparing him to Mary Whitehouse, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I thought it was the Engelbert Humperdinck one that really bothered him. Because <laughs> well, he would mention that. He would say, he goes, oh, yeah. well, how would you like to be compared to Engelbert Humperdinck? Uh, poor Engelbert. I'm just saying, you know, what the hell did I do I've wrong? always thought that, right? That's all part of Beatles' lore, you know, about the Engelbert Humperdinck comparison. Imagine being Engelbert. <laughs> Yeah. 
let go of things that's one thing i love about the beatles oh yeah they they held on to things i mean listen uh when paul did his ballet uh, a few years ago uh, someone else at the times interviewed him dan waken and uh, when dan got off the phone his cubicle was right across from mine i said so um did paul happen to mention to you that the new york times panned sergeant pepper and he said he did. <laughs> so <laughs> how did I know that? <laughs> and we've and heard from thing. George Martin that Ringo always holds on to things. So I think they all do. Yeah. Does anyone want to elaborate more on, I like Aid's assertion that this, this went until Band on the Run. Mm. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't, you know, I had convinced myself that once it got a hit single, he was okay. But it, th- there's a real point to that. I think that he, th- you're right about that interviews when he takes the summer in nashville he does sound like a different man he sounds very confident i was listening to a press conference from nashville just the other day and uh, one thing that really stood out for me was uh, he was asked by a journalist uh, which of your records that you've released as a solo artist is your favorite and he says band on the run and the journalist says to him well why band on the run paul he said because it's successful he said, uh, and I, I tend to measure the uh, success of my albums versus popularity. So if a, an album is selling, to me, that means the album's successful. And you could just hear in his voice at that time uh, that he, like I say, he, he, the tide was turning. I think also because he'd, he'd met with um, John in April of that year, and they were probably heading towards signing legal papers. He knew that the end was near for the Beatles partnership. So also that was probably another reason why the, the, sh- the shackles of depression were, were suddenly being released at that time.
Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok.
can say we were late in arriving and listen to Sitting in the backseat of my car 